Hello and welcome to Early Childhood Ireland's podcast. Our podcast series features interviews and discussions on all issues relating to quality early learning and care with a range of speakers who are leaders in the areas that matter to Early Childhood Ireland members. I'm Maura Corbett and I work with Early Childhood Ireland and in this episode I'm delighted to be chatting with Dr Judith Butler from the Munster Technological University. Judith graduated from UCC with a PhD in 2003. She currently coordinates and lectures on the BA in Early Childhood Education and Care and on the BA in Montessori Education in MTU. She supervises research for Masters and PhD awards. In addition, she's an editor on Online of Vogue, the Irish Journal of Early Childhood Studies, and she's a member of the Scientific Committee of World OMEP, and she's a former president of OMEP Ireland. And she was a judge last year for the Early Childhood Ireland Awards. So, Judith, you're really welcome. Very busy lady, and thank you for taking the time out to talk to us today. Hi, Maura. It's lovely to be here, and thanks very much for the invitation. As you know, I'm a big fan of the podcast. Well, it's great to be, great to be able to talk to you about, um, you know, play and the awards. And as, as I mentioned, you were a judge for last year's Inspired Practice Awards. And in this series of the podcast, we're looking at the power of learning stories. So as a judge and somebody really interested in children's play and making their learning visible, I just thought it would be good to chat to us in this episode about play, children's learning and your experience of being a judge for the for the awards. So having been a judge in the, um, the awards, in a recent article you wrote for our Early Times magazine, you described the importance of scaffolding children's development and learning through active play within the context of responsive and caring relationships. So for me, there are a lot of key points in, in, in that. And like you mentioned, when we were chatting earlier, we could do a podcast on any one of them. So, you know, there's play being active, scaffolding relationships. Um, you know, why do you feel uh, in, in your capacity as a lecturer and involvement with OMEP and so on? Why why is that important and how do we provide for it every day in practice? Yes, Maura, now that's a really big question. So what I do is I break it up into parts and then bring it back together at the end. So going back to basics and those of us who understand the power of play, we know that play is the process through which children develop in an integrated and holistic manner. And sometimes when we think of child development, we think about just the first five areas of development, the physical, the cognitive, the language, the social and the emotional domains of development only. But we must remember that play promotes the holistic development of the child. All nine areas, physical, cognitive, language, social, emotional, moral, spiritual, creative, and cultural awareness. And these are all promoted during play. And we know that studies show that active play improves memory as a result of brain function. It also builds confidence or self-esteem and self-control. And we know the fastest way to change an emotion, even in ourselves, in ourselves is to move. Even the word e-motion is telling us that. So play offers many developmental benefits when supported and promoted in ways that are sensitive and responsive to children's cues and interests. But we also know that when play is supported and extended by an interested, caring, kind, responsive, informed person 
who should have perceptive observation skills, then this is when play is at its most beneficial to the child's holistic development, to those nine areas of development individually and in an integrated way. So fundamentally, children learn through play, but we learn about the children in our spaces through their play. And then moving on to relationships and connections. And I know you and I could talk, do a whole series on this topic. But, you know, going back to Ashter, which states that relationships are at the very heart of early learning and development. And there is a reason why Ashter and extensive research continue to advocate for relationships in our settings. Children need a sense of connection in our spaces. You know, think about the child who enters our space for the very first time. It's a huge vertical transition. They don't know anyone and have no connection to the space. They need to learn that their teachers are people they can trust and that they feel safe safe with. Once that bond comes, then the world of learning opens up, but they can't get to a good space for learning until they feel safe. So we know that relationships precede learning and children learn from those who they trust. And taking time to understand children and their families gives us lots of starting points for learning, as well as important points for building these important connections. So these hooks for learning that I like to talk about are really useful. And I'll come back to those later on. But just thinking back to Dr. Geraldine French's incredible podcast with you quite recently, where she referred to the Romanian orphanages where children grew up starved of human contact and relationships. And research has shown that these children in these orphanages bore similar reactions to Harlow's monkey infants, who, as we know, when were removed from their natural mothers, embraced a cloth-covered surrogate as opposed to a cold wire surrogate who was offering them food. So basically, these baby monkeys choose to feel nourished emotionally rather than being nourished, you know, with food, highlighting that there is a drive in us to connect, to feel love, to belong and to feel safe. And it's essential that we remember this when we're working with our children. So most children in the Romanian orphanage were physically and psychologically delayed, as we know, and many were misdiagnosed with learning disabilities. Some presented with tics, many presented with strabismus, which is a common symptom of children raised in institutions. And, you know, possibly because as infants, they had nothing to focus their little eyes on. And we've all seen the images of the scans showing that these children had smaller brains. But what does this all tell us? Well, it tells us that children, despite getting adequate food and hygiene and medical care, but they had woefully few interactions with adults, leading to severe and behavioural and emotional problems. So the Romanian orphanages are an important reminder that relationships and connections with those in our spaces shape our brains and the wiring in our minds and remarkably create the people we, we, we are. And, you know, we have extensive research that supports the idea that relationships, relational pedagogy or slow relational pedagogy, as Joe referred to, attachment based approaches, relationship based approaches are essential for children. And I'm involved in research at the moment looking at children's psychosocial development um, and, you know, of children who've been impacted by trauma. And we've seen that being that having relationship based approaches are essential for children who have had trauma in their lives. And essentially what we're trying to say here is that the only healing from trauma is through relationships. So how powerful are relationships? 
plus we all know we learn better from people that we, that we like so we only have to think about the children um in our you know the, the, think about the adults the children want to be around these are the ones who stop whatever they're doing when a child approaches them or calls them they're using eye contact they're under on their knees talking to the children letting the children know they're interested in them they're not dismissive of the child when the child approaches them showing them their picture oh that's lovely sit down they're not answering the child from the other side of the room. They're not answering the child while they're on their phone. You know, they always have a smile on their face when they see the children. The children know they're loved and they know they're missed when they're not there. They feel respected, accepted, welcomed and valued, as do these children's parents. So what can we do to help develop the connection process, I suppose, daily? Well, taking time to identify the funds of knowledge, for example, which can act as hooks for learning. And these are a great start, great starting points for relationships with children and their families. And they help us speed up the process of building connections and for that child, a sense of belonging. And that's what we're, we're aiming to do, a sense of belonging for the child. So find out about the, the, the kinds of things children enjoy. Ask their parents, you know, have these reflected in our programs, in our environment, so the children feel like, oh, this place has been set up for me. I belong here. So when our environments reflect the children in our spaces, then it increases children's sense of connection and belonging. And if children feel they belong, they will explore more. They will inquire more. They will play more. They'll speak more. And, you know, I'm a big fan of Marion Dowling, who says that the first of the three R's should be interpreted with the three A's, acceptance, affection and approval. And another favourite quote of mine comes to mind. It's, you know, from John Ruskin, when love and skill work together, expect a masterpiece and basically what John is saying here is that when you have the love for what you do the love for the children the skill to do it for example when you have informed well-trained experienced educators who understand you know how to respond and support children's learning and development expect a masterpiece and then that brings me to talk about support which essentially is scaffolding scaffolding is essentially supporting the child and we all know it's the legacy of you know the great american psychologist jerome bruner and the scaffolding metaphor is important because it shows that we have to constantly adjust our support to meet the growing needs of the developing child and the theory behind instructional scaffolding is that compared to learning independently children learn more when collaborating with others who have a wider range of skills and knowledge than the child and Vygotsky of course referred to this person as the MKO and the person can be an adult or a child it doesn't matter just as long as somebody has a little bit more knowledge about the particular topic at hand so if scaffolding is to be truly successful in my view the relationship between the teacher and the child or the MKO and the child must be warm caring, responsive and compassionate. It's everything that the key person approach advocates. The key person approach really is essential to the overall well-being of the child. And this key person approach can be equally important to the parents who value having someone to collaborate with in relation to their child's needs. And I think it was Elfer um, et al. describes that the key person approach leads to what's called the triangle of trust between a child, its parents and the teacher. And sometimes when we think about scaffolding, we, we sometimes think that it's more suitable for older children. But teachers need to join infants and children in play and build from there. And we're essentially building brains through these interactions and support. You know, Jer spoke again about the serve and return interactions and how important they can be for our babies. 
And as a judge in the Inspired Practice Award, I saw great evidence of scaffolding children's learning and development in the context of these warm relationships. Learning stories are also a great tool to assist in documenting this learning, which I'll talk about later. But the types of, you know, the ways that I saw people were scaffolding the learning was they were asking prompting questions. What do you think would happen if we didn't build the tower quite so tall. Give, they were giving a range of possible answers to think about. They were making suggestions. They were giving demonstrations. They were even providing physical support. So scaffolding, you know, is, is, can be done in many different ways, as you know. But when scaffolding, um, you know, at the end of the day, the teacher is allowing the child to perform at a higher level than they would on their own. And the same strategies work, whether the child is stuck while sorting, finding a lost toy, creating a plan or even opening a snack and later on when they're doing more academic work. So through scaffolding play in a language rich environment, we have can have a real impact on the development of positive dispositions. And of course, learning stories allow us to document all of this and not only have the capacity to make learning visible to you know, children and their families, but they also enable us to strengthen the relationships with children, their families and the wider community. I think that you make that point so well about linking scaffolding and the key person, because it's that adult who knows the child, who knows when to intervene and who knows when to maybe let the child sit with something for a little bit longer. Um, you know, who knows the child's disposition, whether they might be more persistent and will stick at something a little bit longer or might need a little bit of um uh, a leg up metaphorically to uh, to to move on it's uh, you know it's that relationship again and knowing the, the the child so you've talked a lot there uh judith about learning stories and um you know the what appeals to you about the learning stories approach to document children's learning and development and you know i mentioned dispositions there you've mentioned ashter um you know, how do learning stories work to make children's learning across all the domains really visible? Yeah. And learning, you know, stories in general, I suppose, are powerful. You know, I even notice when I'm giving lectures, the students will remember the stories you tell them from your practice. Stories can be even more powerful when they're personal. And learning stories, as we know, were introduced uh, by Margaret Carr back in 2001 and further expanded by Margaret Carr and Wendy Lee. And a learning story essentially is a personal story of what an educator has seen a child or a group of children do. And these learning stories allow us to document a child's learning and development in a most meaningful way. And when I think about Audrey's um, podcast, um, you know, and she spoke about Tom to, to make an image in. And I don't know about you, Mara, but my heart had a really warm, fuzzy feeling listening to Audrey talk Such about her observations. a gorgeous story. It's oh, just beautiful. Beautiful, yeah. yeah. And when she described essentially how she stepped in, you know, into the world of Tomek and Imogen and her observations and assessment of their learning and development was done in such a deep and meaningful way. And I didn't want her to stop. I wanted to hear more and more and more. And that's exactly for this. It's, it's the same for the child when they, they're having that story read to them. So learning stories are an opportunity to truly see children. And that's what Audrey did. She tuned in. She could really see them. She listened. She watched and she heard. And in order to extend a child's learning and development, we need to do that. We need to do that in order to scaffold their learning. And some of my students ask, 
you know, are learning stories really assessment to do that? And the answer is yes, they are. Learning stories are formative assessment. And this differs, of course, from summative assessment as formative assessments are for learning. So while summative assessments are of learning, so formative are so exactly as uh, as the day, the tag, formative. Um, and the goal is to monitor learning to provide us with ongoing, I suppose, feedback and enable us to reflect, remembering that we can only become truly effective if we are reflective. Um, and it helps improve our practice. But why do learning stories work? Well, I suppose Margaret Carr and Wendy Lee talk about this um, in great detail, and they tell us that we need to make a mind shift in terms of how we go about uh, assessing key competencies. For example, you just can't tick off, I am a caring and kind person. I participate and contribute. These are key dispositions that we're developing right throughout our lifespan. So educators need to make that shift from the checklist and tickless mentality, you know, according to these authors. And I agree with them. Dispositions can also be difficult to assess, but learning stories make it easier to see them and document them. So instead of ticking a box to say the child is curious, a learning story might read something like, I saw you in the outdoor area today. You were following a beautiful red butterfly. And you had a theory that it might fly away if you got too close. So you tiptoed over. You were very quiet. I was so proud of how gentle and kind you were. So learning stories are powerful and powerful to children and their families when they're personal. And I just love the idea of the story being shared with children and their families. You know, parents come into us at the end of the day and we might tell them a little snippet of something that the child did. And they're delighted to hear that. So this is even better you know, when a story is written to the child or the children uh, and the parents read about it, you know, it's it's it is both easy for educators as well to write and easy for families to understand. Educators become observers and researchers and can use children's funds of knowledge, which help us really connect with the children. And the funds of knowledge concept or framework, which was um, introduced by Mal et al., you know, encapsulates the idea that each child comes from a home which is indeed an education setting in itself, where knowledge is transmitted. And the knowledge not only maintains the family culture, but also enhances this child's well-being. So taking time to learn and to identify the funds of knowledge, which can be used as what I like to say, the hooks for learning, are great starting points for relationships with children and their families. And they help us and it helps helps us speed up the child's sense of well-being and a certain sense of belonging. So the child trusts the people around them that they've taken an interest in their background and in their interests. So we can hook our funds of knowledge into conversations to children and their parents. That and that can hook that hook can lead to lots of other learning. So funds of knowledge can include things like songs the child has learned at home, traditions, the home language family interests, hobbies, what the child did at the weekend, family pets, favourite TV shows, the list is endless. The child's lived experience to date. And as I said, when these are reflected in our programme and in our environments, the children will feel they have a connection with that space. So in learning stories, the story is always positive. It's, you know, we're always identifying the children's strengths, their good ideas, the dispositions for learning. And there are many benefits, of course, by listening to and observing and recording children's explorations. We send children a clear message that they're valued and that we value how they play and how they think and how they learn. And remember, listening a child to a child increases their self-worth. 
the child believes they have something worthy to say. So they continue to speak to us. And I suppose my final thoughts on learning stories is the learning stories are powerful to teachers, children and families. And at a basic level, children love to hear and see accounts of themselves. But learning stories can connect teachers with families and build strong relationships. And when teachers write stories, they become better observers of children and develop their learning, or I suppose their storytelling voice to joyfully share with the entire community um, and in doing so empower the child. And we must not forget the power of these learning stories and portfolios. Many children will revisit and review their learning stories throughout their life, showing them to their own children in the future, just like looking at a photo album. So. Yeah, it, it, you know, the, the importance of learning stories and building up the trust you mentioned in your, um, you know, your first answer is, is really important. You mm-hmm. know, I think I mentioned to Audrey about, you know, like Chris Effie says that nothing gets under a parent's skin, like yeah. hearing stories of their children and that it hastens that that trust that that builds up that triangle of, of care um, mm-hmm. between the, the setting, the educator, key worker, the parent and and the, the child. And yeah, you mentioned about the uh, learning journals. Um, I remember getting a, um, a damp-eyed moment when Wendy Lee <laughs> described the learning journals and um, being, you know, kind of the prime artifact at 21st yeah, birthday parties. You it. know, it's just so, so powerful. Yeah. So just before we finish, uh, Judith, you um, described when I was chatting to you um, about about making the podcast, you described being a judge last year for the Early Childhood Ireland Inspired Practice Awards as a dream job. Uh, What made it the dream job? That's it. And I'd like to do it full time. (laughs) (laughs) When I suppose more, when I was invited by Early Childhood Ireland to be judge um, for the Inspired Practice Award, I was presented with three exceptional submissions to review. Now, these submissions highlighted the dedication and commitment of the teachers and the ECEC professionals to providing quality experiences to children, their families and the wider community. I was hugely impressed by the considerable time and effort which was involved in these learning opportunities, which without a doubt necessitated engaging in deep reflection on practice and a willingness to critique our, our own our own practice, which is a hard thing to do. So these positive experiences and authentic learning opportunities were examples, I believe, not only of good practice in Irish settings, but also of best pa- practice internationally. They were just incredible. And the type of experiences are what promote the holistic development of the child. You know, children were active agents in their own learning. They were busy. Their learning was supported in the context of these relationships that I mentioned earlier. And the judging process was a particularly enjoyable task, but it it wasn't easy. And I deliberated as the standard was extremely high. And I'm not just saying this. And I was so glad of the deep discussion and analysis that we had with the with the other judges. Um, But upon deep reflection, I selected the kindness elves as the deserving winner. And some of my reasons for selecting the sub- a submission include, you know, that it was a very valuable learning opportunity. There was value in it that will continue to rich, enrich the lives of the children, their teachers, their families and community as a whole. And the winner clearly showed 
that the ECC setting flows into a connected community. It was it was much more than just about that space. It was about the community. And there was exceptional evidence of deep reflection on the diversity of the community as well. So I, I have no doubt that the children who took part in that kindness elves will remember it for the rest of their lives. And I'm sure their teachers feel so privileged to touch children's learning lives in that way. The deserving winner and the finalists all demonstrate that relationships are indeed at the heart of all our work with children and highlight the importance of scaffolding children's learning and development through developmentally appropriate learning opportunities in language rich environments. And the Inspired Practice Awards certainly do highlight, I suppose, that inspiration and ideas for learning opportunities come from divergent sources. And overall, it was an extremely memorable and welcome experience in a crazy 2020. And it showed me the integrity and the transparency of how these awards are, are judged. And as I said in the Early Times article, it has confirmed that what I already know. We have superb examples of outstanding practice in this country. And it really certainly brings home to me that when love and skill work together, expect a masterpiece. Judith, there's such fitting words to, to end with. I think you've left us with so many things to uh, to reflect on about relationships, that uh, circle of trust, the um, importance of connecting with, with parents uh, to help build that uh, that idea of the, the triangle of trust and mm -hmm. using respecting the funds of knowledge. It's been really great to talk to you. Um, if um, having listened to this podcast, if you're interested in making a submission for the ECI Awards this year, check out our website and social media. And don't forget the deadline is the 31st of May. And thank you for listening to Early Childhood Ireland's podcast. Uh, if you've enjoyed the podcast, please tell your friends and colleagues. Uh, Judith, thank you very much once again. And hope you'll all join us the next time. <laughs>